Welcome to the Pitch Vision Academy Cricket Show. It's uh, cricket from now until the end of the show, as it always is. Maybe a couple of little sidelines along the way. But we're mostly going to be talking about improving your game or improving the games of others. My name's David Hinchliffe. I look after things. And helping me to help you are two very fine cricket coaches. The first is the director of cricket at Millfield School. It's Mark Garraway. Hello, Garros. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thank you very much. It's a bit of a blustery old day here, but I'm I'm uh, enjoying the fact that uh, there's some sun, hopefully, down under, and uh, oh, yeah. there's going to be some cr- good cricket played over the next few weeks. Yeah, well, you know, it's the it's the big one, isn't it? The big show coming up. Yeah. Secondly, it's the head of cricket performance at Portsmouth Grammar School. It's Sam Lavery. Hello, Lavers. Also, um, got an eye on the Ashes. Yeah, I think that the build-up's been. Um has been uh, such that everyone's very excited about the cricket now, aren't they? And ashes, ashes all around the world seems to be the focus. And I guess with social media being kind of advancing every single year, the last time we were out there for the Ashes, obviously four years ago now, and, and social media has got to such a stage now that there are so many different um, avenues that you're being bombarded with Ashes information that everyone just wants to get on with it, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think so. It, it always happens though, around any big thing. It's like, oh, everybody always says by the, by the end, they're all saying, oh, we've had enough of the talk, let's have the action. So, um, you know, why, why not this one? You know, when there's even more talk than there's ever been, you know, there's even more scope to say, let's stop talking and start playing cricket. If you think, if you think back to the, when was the last time that we won it prior to 2005? What was that, 80... 80- 86, 86, 86, 87. 87. And how, how would have the build-up been conducted? It would have been, I guess, newspapers, a bit of radio and a bit of bit of TV, and that would have been it, wouldn't it? And now, if you think about the different yeah, avenues it's I, coming, I, I think you've probably got like 15 different apps on your phone that are all telling you pretty much the same thing, that it hasn't started yet. Under the bed covers with your shortwave radio, Garris? Yeah, <laughs> it's very, very different. It was, it was exactly that, wasn't it? And then occasionally BBC Two would have highlights of it. And I remember uh, with this Brisbane test match that um, is going on at the moment uh, in mind, I remember in 86, 87, Big Murph Hughes trying to bounce out the, the batting helmetless Ian Botham. He kept flapping him for six. <laughs> uh, and that was the last hundred that Beefy, Beefy scored for England. Right. But what an amazing... What an amazing uh, innings it was, and and, and I think um, I think that John Embry and uh, Graham Dilley, who's, who's sadly no longer with us, um, uh, bowled us to victory in that. So it would be lovely to think that England could uh, could do the same again. But look at the record that Australia have had since those days, since 1986-87 at the the Gabbertoir, as I call it, and having uh, been there myself in a in a support. Um, uh, sort of context it's an incredibly timid, intimidating place and England are going to have to be absolutely at the top of their game um, the key players that we know all about you know that your Cooks and your Roots and your Andersons and your Broads uh, and probably your Bairstows and your Alleys now looking at you know what they've got in there are going to have to be on their metal because it, it's it's tough um, however there's some you know there's some conjecture about the Australian side at the moment in terms of their selection isn't there and um, although everybody's getting excited about Tim Payne uh, 
uh, being selected to keep wicket. My personal experience of Tim Payne, and I know this isn't borne out by, by stats or performance recently, but that bloke is hell of a cricketer. Um, and it could be that they've picked him at the right stage of his career with uh, the right stimulus, which is the biggest, you know, the biggest test series in the world around him. And he, and he may well come off because uh, he can do some pretty special things. And it's been a surprise to me that he hasn't um, confirmed his uh, talent and played a hell of a lot more. So it's going to be fascinating, mate. And uh, I can't wait. I really can't wait. I probably will listen to the first bit of it, go to sleep, wake up, watch some highlights. But um, I'll definitely be connected with it. Well, hype or otherwise, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, something a bit close to home for perhaps the people listening, a couple of people who are coaching, people who are playing, and that's to do with um, an article that was written a, a little while ago by Stuart Armstrong, who um, is uh, one of the big cheeses at UK coaching. Uh, and he's also a coach as well. He coaches hockey, he coaches cricket. I know because uh, I saw him present at the uh, ECB conference. And he wrote an article called... Um, drills are the drugs of coaching uh, and in it he argues very eloquently that unopposed drills those those drills where there is no op- opponent if you like you know if you're a batsman you know there's no bowler or so on and so forth uh, they feel good but they're not very useful uh, which is why he's co- he compares them to drugs and um, I wanted to know what you guys thought about that about that idea that there is something that exists in the game which everybody does all the time and it feels useful and it feels and it builds confidence and it gives you it feels like it gives you something but actually when you look at it it doesn't give you as much as you think so what what's your views on that article and and the sort of theories and ideas within it what I love about the article is the fact that he's written it from experience isn't he and he, he's written it from both sides of the uh, the argument around drills really he, he came from a position we probably all have as as coaches particularly at the start of our coaching career where all we want is a is a toolbox of, of drills that we can work with people i mean even even on here we get asked all the time what's a drill what's a drill give us a drill don't we and because people find them really convenient and as you say that they associate this um this feeling when they've done the drill of confidence and and yet he's come through that and looked at it through a different lens i suppose and uh, and come from the other stage of it which is you know are they actually doing anything useful at all because ultimately when you get into a contest against somebody you, you're a problem solver aren't you and not often those drills are so constrained that um, they don't allow you to, to solve problems within it. So um, I would say I'm more on where he is now than I than the other side of it, but I've come through a very similar journey and I don't think mm. anybody who's coached long enough wouldn't have come through a similar journey. And I, and I think the most experienced coaches now, they use a drill or they go to the drill because what they see in front of them and what they've observed in front of them demands it rather than go into a drill just because that's what you do. Um, and that, that's certainly the way that I used to coach and way, way back. But hopefully uh, my practice now doesn't look quite so formulaic as that. And it's more based on what I see in front. And if there is a drill that can take somebody to a different level and then just pull them back out of that and put them into a more open environment to see whether that drill has had a positive impact or not, then that's the way that I tend to go about things nowadays. 
Yeah, it was quite, it's quite a controversial um, phrase, isn't it, to use, you know, the drugs. And I, I suppose that's, you know, that, that was the kind of the point, wasn't it, Labour's to say, you know, we're all addicted to something here and it makes us feel good. Um, but actually, let's look at it from, a, from another angle. So ignoring that kind of language, what do you think about the idea that uh, maybe spending less time on drills and more time on other things could be useful? And what are those other things? Uh, well, I think that um, that opportunity for open play and a chance to have multiple opportunities or multiple different things happen and make decisions um, in a kind of more open environment is certainly something that we're seeing as, as being maybe more important or maybe has more impact than, than just sticking to one thing. Um, I think there's still going to be a bit of a place for it, but... The way I think the way Gareth kind of suggested is there is that they they should be something that run alongside um, a main event if you want um, to try and add a little bit here and there or to try and reinforce or actually to try and help learn. There's actually and there's there's a couple of things in the article that I wouldn't necessarily agree with because I think somewhere it says they don't they don't help us learn. Well, actually they're actually a really good way for someone to understand something because they're doing something over again. So it gives them a better understanding of something that they may do automatically in a more open environment. So for some, they would help you learn a little bit, not necessarily um, in, a, in a physical manner, but give you a better understanding of getting to grips with the movements that are taking place or the things you're trying to do. So it might just help your, your brain just kind of deconstruct them, the, the things that are going on. Um, but they're definitely something that needs to run alongside or run or, or be in your kind of in your in your back pocket as a coach rather than things that are the um you turn up and you do an hour and a half of drills and you go home again and and that's what I think people are trying to get away away from and I think that's what's seemingly a more successful way to do it again try to avoid people who say always do this or never do that because that's that's something I think's probably not the most constructive, and they're they're often uses for certain things, even if they're very rarely. So I wouldn't outlaw certain things completely, but um, yeah, having that understanding that certain things just don't don't need the time commitment that maybe they've been given in the past, and and other things that maybe seem to be less controlled um, are actually less controlled for a reason that they they pass the control over to the player who then has to make decisions and, and take control of a situation that they're maybe not comfortable or familiar with, which is cricket. And uh, th this is something which um, I've been sort of thinking about for a while, is the difference in that, in that use of drills between bowlers and batsmen. And I feel like a lot of the discussion around this area focuses on, on batsmen and saying, don't do drills with batsmen, right? Get, a, get, get rid of the tees, get rid of the drop fees, get, the, you know, get someone replicating some kind of bowling because that's what you need to do to get the timing of the swing and all that. Um, often it's spoken about like that, but rarely is it spoken about in terms of bowling. And yet you, I think bowling has got probably more drills, especially when you've got guys like Steph Jones around. <laughs> Bowling's probably got more drills than batting has. So is there, a, is there something there that because the skills are different, you know, one, you know, you have to receive a, a when you're batting, you have to receive a delivery from an opponent. Um, whereas bowling, you have to send that to an opponent. So p perhaps there's a, bit, there's a bit more scope for drills in bowling than there is in batting, perhaps. Well, I'd agree with that in terms of um, a bowling action is more of a closed skill. It's not entirely closed, but it's more of a closed skill. 
um, the batting, which you know you, you having to react to a stimulus, the incoming stimulus, and a num- number of other things. I mean, it's not to say that bowlers don't make decisions because they're making decisions all of the time. I was watching the masterclass with Dan Vittori yesterday, who was talking about him getting into a repeatable bowling action, but all of the time he's making decisions, even in his gather and just before release, based on what the batter's doing at the other end. So, you know, that we do have that, don't we, as a bowler? You do have to be able to look at what the batter's doing at the other end and be able to react. And, and more so now with 2020 and different shots coming into play um, than just spin bowlers have always done in terms of people coming down the pitch or, or whatever the case may be. People are doing more things against seamers now. So I, I do get that. But ultimately... You know, the, the shape of what a bowler does, ball in, ball out, is more consistent than the shape of what a batter does, purely because they get the opportunity to put the ball into play and the, and the batter largely has to, to react to, to that stimulus. So, yeah, I, I think there could be, you know, there, there are more bowling drills. And certainly when I coach in my environment and look around, there are more, uh, I suppose, regimented bowling drills than, than the batting ones that that I utilise but I think as you quite rightly say mate I think there's a reason a, a reason for that and yeah if you want to look at kind of that that sort of uh, I saw a I saw a, a tweet from Steph Jones who you know I, I follow very closely because he always produces so much amazing stuff which uh, was about Brett Lee saying how his action is almost perfect and he's a great example of a you know of, of a fast bowler um but, and that's true. But also, you know, Brett Lee doesn't appear in the top whatever is 100 uh, test bowling average. So if you look at, you've got, to, you've also got to look at it from, well, what's the outcome as well? You know, how many wickets has someone taken? What's their bowling average? So it's a little bit more than just saying build a perfect technique because you don't get you don't get much from having a perfect technique. Um, you know, you don't get any any extra runs or wickets from having a perfect technique, but you you uh, you get runs of wickets from being effective and, and whatever that whatever that looks like and obviously there's the injury prevention aspect of it when it comes to bowling but what it comes down to is can you be effective and and often drills are working on can you be perfect and those two things aren't necessarily the same no no I agree I agree with that I mean he, I used to love watching him bowl I'll be brutally honest with you even oh, when we competed against him he used to yeah. it was it was poetry wasn't it poetry in motion a, a lot of it but equally um, as you say you know he, he didn't have uh, as many skills or effective skills as, as others have had I mean um, my old coach Malcolm Marshall is is um, uh, his stats absolutely smoked Brett Lee out of the park as did uh, you know Kirtley Ambrose who, who I was with the other week I mean you know, his, his stats at a similar time to Brett Lee were phenomenal absolutely you know uh, off off the charts so um, yeah no I, I know where Steph's coming from on that because the stuff that Steph's doing which is brilliant as you quite rightly say uh, you know is more likely to develop a uh, a Brett Lee type of bowler than in terms of their action and maybe a Malcolm Marshall not to say he couldn't do but it's more likely more likely to which is much more organic I suppose um, and the same with Kurtley you know being much more organic a lot of thought gone into it but 
you know, from where they started to where they ended, there was probably going to be uh, less adaptation than we see in, in in modern day bowlers that go through systems such as such as Steph's. But ultimately, you know, when when Steph puts somebody out there who can deliver skills and and achieve things at those stat level, then he's going to go to a different level, isn't he? Another level in the stratosphere of fast bowling coaches, and and time will tell on that one. Uh, as with as with us all as coaches, really, only time will tell. Okay, let's uh, move on to the mailbag. A couple of questions that have been sent in by listeners to the show, and uh, we're going to do our best to, uh, to to help solve the problems that uh, these listeners are facing, or readers to the PitchVision website, of course, over at pitchvision.com. And then uh, the best question of the week, as well as getting the question answered, also wins the prize of an online coaching course from PitchVision Academy at pitchvision.com. And the first person who has sent in a question this week is Talha. And Talha's got a pretty broad question, but so hopefully we can give a, a broad answer on it as well. And Talha says, I'm a, I'm a bowler. Well, he says I'm a bowler, actually, but um, maybe he's a bowler as well as a bowler. But he's a bowler. But my bowling line is not correct. Please tell me a trick to correct this. When you get someone whose length is all over the place, where do we start? Or line, I should say, line is all over the place. Where do we start? Okay, well, um, yeah, when working with line, I guess there are a few things to consider, aren't there? One of the things I'd be thinking about, first of all, is when you say um, my line isn't correct, is it consistently uh, in in an area? So is it consistently leg side, consistently offside when when we're talking about the width of it? Um, or is it just random? And sometimes it's a bit too wide sometimes on the leg side, sometimes a bit too far on the offside, etc. So um, from that, you'd get a bit of information as to what you're doing when you're when you're actually bowling the ball. So if you were consistent, but you're consistently down the leg side or wide outside off stump, for instance, then at least it's telling you that what you're doing has an element of repeatability to it. So you're reproducing a similar line over and over again. So there's there's something you can you can work with and there's maybe not the biggest change in the world to, to make there um, whereas if you've got um, inconsistency in that line and it's and it's leg side offside etc then then maybe there is inconsistency in the action inconsistency in the action so i'd be first of all trying to work out what the difference is between the two so if you've got that consistency you might find that just a bit of a bit of realignment and you can redirect the ball in in a slightly different position so for instance, if you're consistently down the leg side, you may find that by realigning your run-up and being a bit straighter in your run-up, um, you might then reproduce the same deliveries you normally bowl, but it would then be further across towards the offside. Or similarly, vice versa, if you're wide outside of stump and you take your angle a little bit wider in your run-up. Um, if you're inconsistent, then we're looking for the inconsistency. So what's your balance like? How is the alignment of your base? How is the alignment of your arms? Are your arms... and arms and legs moving repeatedly if you look at one one delivery to the next delivery to the next delivery or actually is it all look a little bit different each time you're arriving so try and look at the moving parts try and look at where they're pointing and, and just see if you can compare one ball to the next and see what's going on but generally if you can get arms limbs so arms legs etc pointing in a straight line throughout the action um, you've got a pretty good chance of the ball going straight um, and similarly, if you can get that synchronization right, and it's a little bit more tricky to understand, but 
if you can get your synchronization right so your arms and legs are working together so if you look at yourself from side on in a video you're getting to what what we call a five point star where you your both feet are on the floor and both arms are extended prior to prior to uh, actually releasing the ball then you should be pretty balanced as well or you find that your arms are going to be able to work whilst in a in a balanced position so that being my starting point have a look have a look at those things and and hopefully you'll you'll either be able to put yourself into one category or the other where you you've got the inconsistency or you've got the consistency you just haven't quite got the line one thing i was thinking about gareth was um it, it, the the sort of type of focus that a bowler's got in the air and the area that they're focusing on um obviously with batsmen we talk about you know broad focus and narrow focus i guess that applies to bowlers as well and where they're focusing and how they're focusing can make a difference to where the ball lands yeah definitely and it's about targeting isn't it and um you've got some people that, that are narrow focus that they would love to bowl at targets for example and and you know i've worked with bowlers and, and watch others work with bowlers if you put a cone down for them to hit actually that cone's almost too big for them to you know to focus at so they pick out maybe the hole in the top of the cone uh, as being their their target point for them to bowl at. it doesn't mean to say they hit it every time if they did they'd be you know glenn mcgraw but but um <laughs> Uh, but uh, it certainly is a visual focus. It's really important that those guys pick out a narrow bit of uh, a small piece of, uh, of turf or a, a small area to, to aim at. And then equally, you know, for um, other bowlers, uh, having a broader focus, if they go too narrow and they, they get too intent on um, looking at a point on the pitch, it can affect the way that their bodies are, are, are operating, you know, and they can get too tense across the shoulders. And, and then going back to that sequencing that Sam just talked about, uh, that sequencing can be fractionally out, which leads you to, to push the ball or drag the ball here, there and everywhere. So working out which one of the two visual focus preferences works for you is, is really useful. So my suggestion would be to, to any bowler is, is have a go at both. So run up with a sort of broad picture. It's easier when you're bowling against a batter a broad picture of what's going in front of you and just sort of feel, trust your feel to get the ball into uh, a line and length and see how that goes for you and then have a go for a, a, a separate over where you run in and bowl um, looking at a very uh, particular and specific point on the pitch and, and see how that goes for you as well and by the end of that little experiment you will know not just through your outcome but also through how your body felt and how you felt as a bowler going through that process which one of those two uh, is going to be your preference and uh, uh, it's a useful exercise which may add a little bit of value on top of all of the technical things that you can do in terms of alignment as well mm. the other thing that um, uh, came from a book that you recommended actually Gareth The Inner Game of Tennis is um, about trying not to overthink it too much unless you're putting the ball into the side netting every single time um, and then we've got a bit more of a, <laughs> a bit more of a challenge than if you're bowling the odd ball down the leg side but um, if you if you can you know you can do it it's just at the moment it doesn't seem to be coming out right then it's almost sort of don't don't over focus on what your body's doing don't don't try and do it just let it just just let it do it itself uh, as it says in that book, let the serve serve itself. You know, it's uh, it, in tennis, you're talking about serving. In cricket, you're talking about, you know, you haven't got an implement, but you're still sending the ball somewhere. You want it to land in a specific place. So it's a similar process. 
very much so very much so and and it goes back to that um, that subconscious thought thing doesn't it you know that when we actually aren't worried about wides and when we're not worried about our line we we, we just run up and uh, and bowl and things happen for for a reason you know but but equally that's it's not as easy to do that when you are suffering a little bit of a, a radar problem you know and we and we see people um we see people getting into a right state around that so uh, yeah, having coping strategies for that because it's going to happen to everybody at some point um you know using your breathing really effectively i think is to try and calm yourself down is is really useful to have a bit of perspective that there isn't a bowler that's played cricket for any length of time that hasn't had this experience that you're going through because you can often feel as if it's only happening to you you know the fact is that it's happened to us all at some stage um is also uh, useful for give us a bit of perspective um but yeah breathing i, I think is really key because it slows not just the body down but also slows your mind down a little bit as well um, because our mind is an incredible thing for for getting cluttered and, and becoming very uh, very worrisome. So if we can uh, control that, then it gives us a much better chance of being successful. That goes across all the disciplines, really. Yeah, if you if you're stressing out, then you could you know one of the common reactions to to uh, uh, getting stressed about something is for your shoulders to tense up, right? And if your shoulders tense up, that's not that's not going to help you bowling very much. So it's 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 a great skill um, to be able to sort of release that that tension and sort of accept that you're having that thought, but then don't do anything about it. Just just bowl. Um, seems like too simple a piece of advice almost, but it's actually quite hard to do without quite a lot of practice. So, yeah, yeah, no, definitely, yeah. definitely. Is it the same when you know somebody might be coming at you really hard, and you feel as a bowler that they've got your number, whatever you bowl is going to go it's that sort of situation again and taking yourself out of that that sort of taking a step back getting your breathing uh underway and just trying to relax in that situation because it is really a, a good thing to do it's not easily done but we can practice it because somebody in the nets next next session you go to is going to have a wool over you you know if you bowl at seven batters or five batters or whatever somebody's going to be on top of you so instead of just bowling and, and hoping that you know that 15 minutes ends and somebody else comes in see if you can practice some coping strategies um you know you might have a next session where you are spraying it around all over the place well that's a great opportunity to practice some breathing taking yourself out of that situation and um uh, and and trying to be less sort of critical of yourself and see what happens then if you recover it in that next session then you can recover it when you go out to the middle next and the same thing happens Next question is from Leon. It's another general question, but I think we can uh, get stuck into it. Leon says, is success in 2020 a good measure for selection in 50 over cricket? Well, it can be. It, yeah, it can be. Um, although it depends what context you're then going to be deployed in, I suppose. Um, so if you're opening the batting in, in T20 cricket, and you're uh, and you and you have a great run of things, and you score loads of runs. So let's think about somebody like David Warner, for example. You know, he's the best example of this. Um, 
he went really well in T20 cricket so his next stage was to play in some 50 over cricket uh, and all it really was was a, a case of a tempo you know if he if he batted for 10 overs in a T20 game he'd dominate it and set Australia on, on a good way and equally if he did the same in 10 overs in, in 50 over cricket he could do the same as well but what he's done brilliantly I think is he's adapted to be able to play the the 35 40 over innings now and we saw a few examples of that last year when Australia were in India where at the outset of his career I I think um, he he would have just kept going in that crash bang wallop type way that it came from 2020 cricket but his experience and also the way he thinks about the game has allowed him to take the foot off the gas and and just back through that middle phase still scoring at a good rate or not because he's got enough shots and he's and he's smart enough but you know he started to score 140s 150s and real match winning scores in 50 over cricket so if somebody at the top of the order I think it's really transferable somebody down the bottom of the order who's good at playing the five or six ball innings and striking at 210 or whatever the case may be yeah as long as you put them in the right place I think because trying to get them to extend their play over a 10 over period is quite a big stretch so think about what you what you're trying to do with that guy in 2020 he's batting down the order and and whacking at, at 200 over a very short inning so if you can stick him in stick him in where he can do a similar thing over a slightly longer period rather than asking him to to completely uh, uh change his game you know that that would be my sort of advice and that and then you look at somebody like Bumrah from a bowling point of view you know he made his name in 2020 cricket but is now one of the best bowlers in 50 over cricket as well and, and I think you've got to look at what they're doing and how they and what roles they're playing in those games but also look at the character as well because I watched David Warner play and I heard him interviewed and whilst everybody was talking to, about him being a you know a 2020 player with potential to play 50 over cricket I can remember sitting with Kevin Peterson at the time when we first saw this guy and I said I reckon he could play test cricket and Kev said no not, not a chance I said I promise you he can because he, he just does the basics really well he just does them very early so he hits through cricket balls fantastically well. And if you hit through cricket balls in test cricket, you go pretty successfully. It's when you start to do the funky stuff in test cricket that you maybe get um, uh, you maybe get found out a little bit. So, you know, for me, it wasn't David Warner wasn't just a could he play 50 over cricket, but because of the simplicity of his game and the fact that he could hit through cricket balls, actually he could play whatever format that he wanted to put his mind to. I think, Labour, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think um, it, the the word is is adaptability, isn't it? Like, if it, there are there are changes between 2020 and 50 over cricket, there's there's fewer than between 2020 and and longer formats. But if you're going from 50 over cricket to 20 over cricket, if you're if you have that adaptability, that ability to adapt the way you play to adjust for a longer format, then uh, then you are going to be okay. And it, it's almost like. That's the thing you have to be looking for rather than, oh, well, he scored a 20, 20, 100, so, you know, let's get him into the 50-over team. It's it's more like, it, well, he scored a 20, 20 100, that's good. Uh, can he adapt his game to be able to do it in 50-over cricket? Yeah, I think having some skills is obviously going to be really important, but having that um, that mindset to re-establish yourself in a slightly different format is is so valuable and, and a lot of people almost label themselves as a certain type of cricketer and, and very, very dangerous to do that or to label someone because you can very quickly have a, a negative impact on their ability to tran- transfer into a different format if 
if they're trying to and if they hear you saying that they're a certain top cricketer or if they, they tell themselves that. And one, one of the things I was thinking about this question is how the transition changes and, and, and probably 20 over cricket into 50 over cricket is a very different transition in and outside of the professional game. Um, within the professional game, it's kind of working the same ball, um, similar intent. You obviously you'll you'll bat all the way down to to, to eight nine, or somewhere around there. People can get runs eight nine ten hopefully, um, and it is a short form. Whereas in in non professional cricket, fifty over cricket is the long form, and that doesn't have scores of 350 every week like it it may do or more often so in professional cricket and it's in different conditions as well so um the 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 transition from 2020 to 50 over cricket in in club cricket potentially is a bigger one than the transition from 20 to 50 over in in um in professional cricket in my opinion and obviously there's the change of ball and the different 2020 competitions around the country i think they generally use an i think they're on a pink ball at the moment is that right um but obviously then they go up to um, a red ball on a Saturday. Some of them then use a different coloured ball for part of the Saturday cricket as well because they have two different competitions on a Saturday. So there there are a number of kind of adjustments to be made and they're slightly different between the level of cricket you play. But it does come back to what you said there and it's that um, ability to adapt to a situation. And now whether that situation is a variation within a game or a variation of the format of that game, that's that is really what we're looking for, isn't it? Is that ability to adapt, reapply the skills you've got, or or adjust the sc- the skills that you're trying to use in a particular game to suit the the environment or the the, the challenge that's presented in front of you. And every day that's different. Um, some days it's more different than others, and and that's where those guys who are the best in the world pick up their game, put it in a 2020, put it in a test match, it doesn't seem to bother them. World-class players are world-class players. Yeah, world-class adapters, as well as world-class many world-class other things. Adapters. Yeah, yeah <laughs> as well absolutely. as many other things. But yeah, that adaptability, I think, is, is crucial to it. And that's why you see guys who can do all three. But they're, they're, they're very, you know, those type of players are quite rare because it is hard to be that adaptable. Well, it's very hard to be to be good at one of those formats isn't it and to commit all your time and all your life as a professional cricketer to being a great four day five day player or to be something or or something else in 2020 is extremely difficult to get to that level regardless never mind to be able to kind of switch on switch off and go from one to the other on a on a weekly or a daily basis so don't overestimate the under underestimate sorry the um the challenge that's involved there and the skill that is applied by those guys who can do that and and make it look relatively easy mind you as you said there aren't many of them are there and that is the end of the show for another week we do need to do one more thing before we leave which is decide on the winner of this week's competition uh, the prize on offer is an online coaching course from Pitch Vision Academy at pitchvision.com and the questions this week were Talhurst's question about his uh, bowling line and Leon's question about 2020 into 50 over cricket which one did you prefer this week Garris? I like Taylor's question about the the bowling line because you know you can come at that from so many different yeah. angles and uh, and maybe one of those individual angles is the way forward for for Taylor or maybe it's a combination of of a couple of them as well. So hopefully within that answer we've given you some uh, some things to experiment with and, and find the ones that work for you. 
Yeah, good luck, Talha. And uh, Garros, if someone else who was listening to the show wanted to send in their question, um, we're always open for new questions. How can they get in touch with us? They can give us a call on 0203 239 7543 or drop us an email on coach at pitchvision.com. That is correct. Uh, you can also um, get in touch with us through social media. Uh, if you head over to pitchvision.com, you can find the, the Pitch Vision Academy account there. Just search for that. Send us a message there on our social media platform there. Or Facebook is facebook.com slash pitchvisionacademy. And Twitter is at pitchvisionacad. You can listen to this show every week as well. If you want to do that, it's pretty easy. You just do a search for Pitch Vision Academy in your favorite podcast app. You'll find us in there. Or you can head over to pitchvision.com. Uh, go to the Academy page. That's pitchvision.com slash Academy. And click on the podcast link. And you'll find all the old shows, all the old show notes. You can download it, stream it from there, do anything you like along those lines. That's all for this week. We hope you listen next week. But until then, have a good week. Cheers, Garris. Cheers, Lavers. Cheers, fellas. Cheers, guys.